last and final last dance postgame show here on Locked On NBA, your special Monday edition. Josh Lloyd will be back with Mondays coming up here for you today. As always, Matt Peck, Locked On Bulls, who's been living the high life with his team on the focus. John Corrales, who's just been a stalwart the whole time through Locked On Celtics. Doug Branson, Locked On Hornets. And then the victims. Tony East, Locked On Pacers. I'm David Locke, Locked On Jazz. Heck with Matt Peck. Tony East, are you okay? Yeah, I've been bullied for two hours, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in there. Was that pun intended or was that just naturally <laughs> quick? Uh, no, pun intended, pun intended. But, yeah, it was really enjoyable. I mean, we did the, you know, best seasons in Pacers history a couple weeks ago, and that was the best season in Pacers history. Not the best result season, but that was their best team. And, you know, you saw how good they were. They almost took down the, the greatest of all time. So I was the Utah Jazz pre-halftime post-game show host and afternoon drive host and program director of the flagship radio station in the two years that were highlighted in this episode. I have to just first admit, I knew this was coming the whole time. I didn't think it would bother me. It was so painful. So painful to re-watch and like... The biggest takeaway I have, and I think this is probably from a Jazz point of view a little bit, maybe a little bit from a Pacers point of view, and this 10-hour documentary is about the greatest player and the greatest team of all time. And if anyone leaves this without the understanding of how hard it is to win a championship, they missed one of the major points of this whole thing. I mean, you look, I can find as a Jazz fan, like five different plays in each series that I'm utterly convinced if you swing them, the series changes. I'm sure Tony can do the same thing in game seven. You go back to like the various moments. I mean, this to me is the greatest player of all time, the greatest team of all time, six of eight years, some to extent six of six years, and yet, Every single one of these titles had a moment where it was in the on the brink. Yeah, I mean the whole series against the Pacers that you know every, you you heard all the guys in the media on the dock talking like the Indy's going to do this. You know, six minutes left in the game, it felt like in the stadium the Pacers had them. They had the right matchups. They had a great team, but I mean the Bulls were just that good and they had the experience. But it really shows how hard it was to me. I mean that every step of the way, you know, a team that could even make the finals pushes you to the brink and the Jazz, you know, just as good push you to the brink. It's it's hard to win just that one, nonetheless the five before. Uh, yeah, I mean, I tell you Tony, like I was talking to my roommates watching this doc tonight and uh when they showed Reggie hitting that shot uh to even up the series. Um I remember watching that game when I was a kid and then you know, you get the MJ shot where he double clutches and he almost banks it in. And it rims out MJ's push off and MJ or, or sorry, Reggie's push off of MJ and Reggie hitting that shot. And then MJ missing the the potential winner at the buzzer. Like I cried. I was a kid watching that game and I cried because I was afraid. I mean, uh, growing up, I learned that one thing MJ never does is lose. He just wins all the time. And that Eastern Conference final series in 98 was the first time as a child learning who MJ and the Bulls were that I was honestly in fear of them not getting it done because for for all of the ways in which you know Reggie was just more of a, of a trash talker than anything else 
I also respected and feared the hell out of Reggie in those big game moments. And he delivered time and again in big game moments. And when that series went back to Chicago, tied up, you know, for, for game five, I was like, dude, I, I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm honestly terrified. Truly, the lore of Reggie Miller has grown so much just from his game winners because, like, his just statistical resume and, like, all-star appearance numbers, things like that, don't paint him as, like, as good as he really was or, like, the killer that everybody thought he was. Like, you saw how much respect MJ had for him when they showed that cut before uh, that game three in Indiana when they were dapping up talking about how hard that game was going to be. You know, that everybody had respect for Reggie because he had that clutch mentality. And I appreciated your Freudian slip there saying MJ pushed off when he was talking about <laughs> Reggie's nah, push off. Nah, but nah, <laughs> We're yeah. not going to talk about Brian Russell right now. <laughs> oh, it was just a slight graze. He was already moving that direction. I heard it. I heard as, it. As Bob Costa said, it was the equivalence of, uh, you know, a Mayor D showing someone to their table. Let me he tell was you what, if the Mayor D ever way. touches me like that, we got a problem. I appreciated Reggie calling his own push off a light push off because I mean he just shoves him in the chest. It's so it's so good. But yeah, that's what he did, right? And even in the finals in 2000, two years later, I mean Reggie was inches from hitting the biggest shot in Pacers history in Game Four of that series too. So and you know everybody, there's a whole 30 for 30, another one about what he did to the Knicks and other teams. Like it's just what he did. Seeing that respect between him and Mike and. How that game ended was just so interesting, the killer mentality. But yeah, like Mike doesn't lose. He makes those shots all the time. But to David's point about the little things that go one way or another, that jump ball, Rick Smith's gut and and you I've I've heard the story now told a couple of times that Rick Smith's, if he had just tipped that backwards, that they would have won that tip. And then who knows how that series goes? Uh how, who knows if they win that game? That little thing, and and the as as the story goes, that Larry Bird was starting to call the timeout as the ball was thrown up in the air because he realized, oh no, Rick Smith always tips the ball forward, and that's where the Bulls were. If he had just tipped it backwards, things could have gone differently. It's to me one of the things that stuck out here is these two teams, the Pacers and the Jazz really were the two teams that could have derailed, were most likely to derail the the Bulls, more so than the Knicks, even more so than the Pistons, because the Pistons were just more bullies than anything else, more trying to just beat the crap out of Jordan. The the This Pacers team, this Jazz team, those teams were just good and good enough to pushed these Bulls as hard as they've been pushed throughout this entire six championship run. Do we think they would have won the seventh that Michael's talking about? Or the fact that it was that tight with that many plays actually says that maybe Krause actually had a point that this thing had run its Run its I mean, course. I'll tell you all this. Uh, it's not a popular opinion among my, my Bulls fan base, but I have always believed that they broke up when they should have. Uh, I do not think even the argument of, well, it was a lockout short 99 season. It would have given ample time for MJ to heal from his cigar, you know, cutter finger injury. And, uh, you know, maybe it gives uh, Dennis and Luke a little bit more time to heal because Dennis and Luke were ailing. Scotty was ailing. And I think Scotty wanted out regardless. The You know, the Bulls gave Scotty a parting gift with that sign and trade deal that gave him like 20 million more 
that he could have made if they kept him around. And to me, the crux of all of it is Phil Jackson. Because people always use that quote about Jerry Krause saying, you know, I don't care if Phil goes 82-0, he's out of here. Phil himself was ready to go. You heard him say it himself in this documentary. Phil was mentally exhausted from this entire saga and wanted nothing more than to get on his hog and drive away to, to Montana and never be bothered again until he came back a few years later and coached the Lakers. But he needed a break. And I think uh, something that people forget about is Phil Jackson has always talked about. He talked about it in his uh, memoir, uh, 11 Rings. He always believed that seven years was the max that any group of players could listen to and actually believe in a coach's message. And this 98 title season was Phil's ninth at the helm for this Bulls team. Whether you talk about MJ, Scotty, Dennis, all the other parts, I think Phil being ready to leave was the really was really the thing that made it happen. And people just want to blame Jerry Krause because people like blaming Jerry Krause for things. He's Matt Peck. He's Locked on Bulls. I'm David Locke, along with Tony East, John Corrales, Doug Branson. Doug Branson, do the Bulls win the seventh if they stay together? I'm with Matt here. I don't think they win the seventh. Um, I did love, there was this moment uh, with Phil Jackson where he's in the locker room and he's gathering the troops together and he's very like Zen master that we all know Phil Jackson to be. And he's saying, all right, guys, remember what I was talking about with the centering and the, and the focusing. And then uh, just a few shots later, the, the bulls are down and uh, Phil Jackson is just like, all right, damn it. We got to get it together. <laughs> like he's totally out of the the the, the Zen Buddhist uh, is gone. And now he's just full throated Phil Jackson trying to win a championship. So I, I think it really did rest all with him. I think so many relationships seemed irreparable by that point that even if you could have cobbled everyone together could they have uh, you know held those threads together long enough to do uh, what it took to win a championship I'm not sure and you know players were starting to age bodies were starting to break down I just think it would have been a a tough road to hoe in that uh, final season if they had if they had made it seven just a reminder for everyone that next year is the lockout year. So there's only 50 games played that next year. Interestingly enough, the Jazz, who are just as old as the Bulls, finished the year 37 and 13 with the best record in the NBA, tied with the Spurs, who ended up winning it. But the Jazz bowed out in the second round to Portland. So they got the Jazz, who were at the, the Blake. You know, it's funny. We love young players, but if you actually go back and look at that series, that was the two youngest, the two oldest teams in the NBA, both those two years, playing each other. You know, for all the build the young guys up and do all these things. That Shaq Penny thing is a rarity. John, you're seeing it, how hard it is for the Celtics to totally figure it out as a young team with young stars right now. It is the two oldest teams in the league that we watched right then uh, in those finals. That's still often the case. The two oldest teams are the best. Uh, John Corrales, we'll jump back to him in a second. Today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. Have you tasted the new revolutionary delicious protein energy bar? Built Bar has rebuilt the way you should think of an energy bar, both in health and in taste. The Built Bar Mint Brownie Delight is my favorite, or the Double Chocolate Mousse, but I don't like nuts because, well, they send me to the hospital, so I try to avoid them. And nicely enough, Built Bars got a nut-free facility that they do all of their nut-free bars in. You can get 
$10 off your first order of Built Bar by using the promo code Locked On, and you can build your own box or get the mixed box while you're at it. Built Bar's macros are incredible. 110 calories, leading men's sports bar is 250, so you're saving 140 calories. Your carbs are down 33 from 38 to 5. Instead of 21 sugar grams, it's just four. It's Built Bar. Go to BuiltBar.com, enter in the promo code LOCKEDON, get $10 off your first box. John Corrales, Locked On Celtics. What was your biggest takeaway of not just 9 and 10, but as we sit here with this done, what do you think everyone's added to their knowledge? What do you think the takeaway is of this event? Of the entire thing, uh, I feel like the biggest takeaway is that, well, Michael Jordan hates Scotty Burrell, number one. And... (laughs) I think I think the overarching theme is Michael Jordan will do anything to win. I think that's when you look at every piece of this, I guess, mythology at this point. It's building Jordan up to what did he overcome to win this time? Uh in this case, the flu game. Uh, he overcame uh, whatever it was, uh, the, the the Byron Russell. Like this, this he always has something that drives him to win at all costs. Whether it's a a slight, whether it's an illness, whether it's whatever. It, it's the 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 biggest thing that I see from here is. Michael Jordan will take any motivation, any little thing, any little sideways glance, anything that he he can take, and he'll use that as motivation to win. And I think that's purposeful. I think I think because of Michael Jordan's involvement in this thing, they are they do build up this mythology of Jordan would never lose because of XYZ. So uh for me, that that that's what I see. I see, even even in that last game, uh, where he he had he has to overcome the Scotty Pippen injury. You know what I mean? Like like even that he, they really really played up the Scotty Pippen back injury. So it's like, well, it's up to Mike, and 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 they really just set in every episode up something for some big obstacle for Mike to overcome. The generation of NBA player that we have today is Kobe's generation. That's why Kobe's death was so hard-hitting for them. For most of them, they're not part of Michael's generation. This is, they've heard, this was their introduction into the mythology of Michael Jordan. What do they take from this? The the younger Kobe fans? Um, Our players today are those young Kobe fans, like... Our players today didn't see Michael, right? Like if you're if you're 10 years old in 98, you're not playing the NBA anymore, right? That's that's 22 years ago. You're you're unless maybe you're 34, 35, so you're Vince Carter. But our our Jason Tatum's and our Donovan Mitchells and our uh Victor Oladipo's and and our Lori Markkinen's and Wendell Carter's are Kobe guys, right? 
Hornets, do you have a young player? Oh, Malik Monk. Malik Monk is a Kobe guy. Sorry, Doug. Well, 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 hold on now. Miles Bridges is apparently challenging Michael Jordan to a game of one-on-one on Twitter. Uh, yeah, he's so going to lose he that. Something. By the way, by the way, <laughs> by the way, I'm a little offended that I was not mentioned as a victim of this documentary. I might be the greatest victim or my fan base is because Michael Jordan still owns my basketball team. So <laughs> I just want to say that. I thought it was funny that they that uh, MJ said he he like I could beat anyone on my roster at 51 years old. It's like maybe your roster's not that good, MJ. Well, he said that five years ago, and and the roster wasn't good then. Either. <laughs> so. so I I look at this as now I'm going to show my Greekness in this. My so Jordan Jordan to me like if if you're looking at this from a Kobe perspective. Kobe is Aristotle. Jordan is Socrates, who taught Aristotle. And whoever is now the big, you know, the, the Jordan, the, the, the Kobe disciple, maybe it's Jason Tatum. I'll throw my little Celtics uh, thing in there. Maybe he's the Plato of this world. There's, there's this progression. There's the teacher, the student, and whatever. So the Kobe fans, the ones who came in and saw Kobe, the young players, the Jason Tatum who idolized Kobe, the you know all, all of these young players in the NBA who idolized Kobe, you 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 have that episode that we talked about where where Kobe says, "Hey, this doesn't happen without Mike," and I think they see this as like we didn't get to see him play. This would be like me seeing a ten episode documentary on Bill Russell that I never got to see play, but he's the greatest of a couple generations ago and he begat the greatest of the current generation. So I think for the, the younger fans, even the younger players in the league who looked up to Kobe as their Jordan, they now get to see Jordan and see him play and understand. We, we talk about Mamba mentality, but that the Jordan mentality is what we're talking about. That's where it all began. Yeah, I think, and you kind of heard Kobe talk about it in one of the earlier episodes of this doc, uh, you know, which obviously added uh, extra weight knowing the tragedy of his loss since then. But saying, you know, those five rings I win with the Lakers, that doesn't happen. My mama mentality, none of that happens without MJ first. Um, because it, it, he he was the first one to have that. And I, I think that's also a funny thing that we're hearing about right now is people having this take on whether or not you have to be an asshole to be a good leader and win championships. And maybe MJ was like a rare breed in that in that way. And maybe Kobe had some of that too. It's like you could win championships and be a great leader and the best player on a team. You don't have to be as much of a jerk as MJ was to make it happen. But that's clearly the mode that MJ operated in for the entirety of his career from being someone who felt, you know, slighted, you know, getting cut from varsity in high school, not making the Sports Illustrated cover as a freshman at UNC, through the Pistons battles and everything until he was defending his title as the greatest player of all time. It was always that jerk part of MJ that made him as insanely competitive and successful as he was. Yeah, and I would say, I think one of my biggest takeaways from the documentary is actually something that we still don't have a full understanding of uh, after this documentary, which is what made him that way. I, I don't know if we have a full understanding of what makes Michael so insanely competitive 
and and maybe that builds into the mythology maybe maybe we'll just never know maybe maybe he was just sort of built that way and is always that way and I think if you're somebody that's uh growing up as a Kobe fan and looking back on Michael you look at this documentary and go I'm I'm either that or I'm not I'm either that insanely competitive or I'm not and I've got to find another way to make my dreams come true through you know hard work repetition and you know being a little smarter than everyone else um I think another interesting thing is that Michael at the you know end of his career saying you know I had to go from using my body to also using my mind becoming a cerebral player um, I, I think that's another thing that people can take away from this documentary and, and learning the transformation that Mike had to go through from this like super athletic gift, athletically gifted player to having to get stronger to beat the Pistons to then having to become a cerebral player to extend his career into that second three-peat. Just a fascinating stuff. I think there's a lot to learn um, if you're a basketball fan, even though the game has tremendously changed. I mean, that's one takeaway from the documentary, too. 90s basketball was ugly. There was a lot of 85, oh my 83 God. scores. What was that, 54 points in a finals game? Right, which wasn't just a playoff record low, but as they said in the doc, in the shot clock era, it was the lowest <laughs> final point total. And I love how we get that shot of Jerry Sloan at the podium after the game being like, was this, was this really the final score? Is this it? <laughs> I got to I, I got to watch that game in person. That was it, it was by the way, and I oh don't know if you God. noticed, but the next game, game four, where Stockton makes the incredible shot, it's like 74-74 when Stockton makes that pass to Malone. Seventy they the, these games were at eighty possessions a game. It's incredible. The Jazz beat the Bulls 88-85 in overtime. In overtime. Like that's that I I do not miss. 90s basketball and i that's that's the end of a mild third quarter in today's nba (laughs) oh my god right right uh like and and i i can appreciate how much it makes every possession matter and so when somebody hits a big shot it magnifies how big that shot is because no one's making shots but at the same time i'd like to see somebody make some shots like I'd like to see a few more baskets go in. So I, I I'm a staunch fan of good hard nosed defense. I'm a believer in the hard foul. But 88-83 or 88-85 is not really fun for me. It is the locked on NBA last dance postgame show. I've got the last plays that have to be talked about. And maybe the last seance has to be talked about as well in the midst of this last dance. Today's show is brought to you in part by Blinkist. Blinkist is pretty awesome. I got to admit, I've been doing a lot of driving recently. We'll be doing even a lot more because, well, we're not flying as much as we might be once did and have things I still have to get to. So books on tape. Can I get one book on tape done for the five-hour drive? Or what happens if I got the brief summary of Eight different books during that time period. That's what I did uh, this weekend with Blinkist. It's it's great. It is unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, your browser. It takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them into just 15 minutes that you can listen to or you can actually read it. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now. It has a massive growing library of self-help, business, health history books. Blinkist has the latest 
titles and bestsellers list as well as classic nonfiction titles you always wanted to read. You know that book you're like, hey, I should really read that, but I'm not sure I'm going to get to it. Today, my version of that was Upheaval, The Turning Points for Nations in Crisis by Jared Diamond. It just seemed like maybe the right thing to find out about right now, but I probably wasn't going to invest the 20 hours to read it. Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss is another one. How Champions Think in Sports and in Life by Bach. Dr. Bob Rotella is a great one if you're an athlete. So go to Blinkist.com slash NBA. Try it free for seven days and get 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash NBA to start your seven-day trial. That's Blinkist.com. A few notes for you that I want to, uh, from being there when it happened. Uh, Jordan shot game one. 97 finals post-game press conference took him like two minutes and 30 seconds to describe what happened in 13 seconds. Like I saved it. I have the audio like on some old computer somewhere. You ever wonder like why the greatest players are great? Like it was this incredible sight into his mind, how it works, what he's seeing before it happens. And that really takes us to the final three-play sequence of his Bulls career, which is just mind-blowing. Have to get a two-for-one. He goes right to the basket, scores a layup in seven seconds. That's where the whole game changes. Jazz were up three. Malone gets the ball in the post. Jordan says in the Last Dance documentary, I knew what play they were going to run. I knew what I was going to do. I asked him in 98 post-game press conference, when was the first time it crossed your mind to come back and swipe it away and steal it from Malone? And he said, sometime last year's playoffs. So he'd held that move until he knew he had that move once and he held it until that moment and then he hits the shot. It's the <clears throat> it's the whole essence of the greatest player to ever play the game. That's that's what really makes the greats the greats. It's the ability to recognize something, file it away, and in the moment say, I remember this. I'm going to do this now. And whether it was... To yesterday, a year ago, two years ago, it's this kind of like computer type knowledge of you can instantly go through your Rolodex of situations and go, wait a minute, I recognize this, boom. Same thing with that Kerr shot. With the, if I do this, Stockton's going to come double me, you're going to be open. And Kerr, telling Kerr, this is what's going to happen, and Kerr recognizing, say, I'll be ready. And he hits that jumper. That's That's something where... Good players will say after the game, ah, I should have known that. And people like maybe us will will take days to go, oh, I I, I remember this. Jordan and the greatest of the greats do this like instantly. And and, and that's, that's what really separates them from everyone else. John, do you remember LeBron uh, when they played the Celtics in 2018 when the Celtics went on a 7-0 run early fourth quarter and LeBron rattled off the entire run play-by-play, perfect memory on the podium after that game? Yeah. When you describe, when, when you know something's happening on a play, you understand when you're, when you're Michael Jordan. And this is what, like, I can understand it 
having gone through the tape five times and go, oh, okay, yeah, okay, I get it. Jordan is processing in the moment, in real time, all of these things. It might as well be like that that movie with the ones and zeros going across the screen or like RoboCop with the identifying, like, oh, this is a threat, this is not a threat. Like Being able to say, well, I know this is happening, and if I do this, this guy's going to go that way, so I'm going to have this guy open. Like, all of that stuff is is just genius-level stuff. Like, I always like to say, I feel like when we're talking on a podcast or, or whatever writing I'm doing, I'm like a high school science teacher, and these guys are like Stephen Hawking. Like, these guys are just so far advanced that it, it, it's just mind-blowing to see how well they process and recognize and not only all of that, but manipulate what they're processing so they can get what they want. Yeah. And, and, to, and to your point, John, about getting what they want, I think they touched on it briefly in the doc, but something that maybe is is not appreciated as it should be is Phil Jackson not calling a timeout. They talked about it a little bit, but you know, not only does MJ get the two-for-one quick bucket and then the steal, but knowing and having the trust in his best player, the best player in the game to say, I don't need a timeout right now. I don't need to let Utah set up their defense right now. I'm going to go just let the great be the great. And, and Dennis Rodman, who, you know, just makes the first appearance in a while in this doc, it, it says it so beautifully and plainly. Just like, yeah, that MF are going to go shoot that ball. We all know what's happening. We don't need a timeout to say, MJ, go win the game for us. <laughs> Dennis is like, yeah, we all know who's shooting that shot. And I, I, I just saw on Twitter as we're recording a freeze frame of the shot and somebody just saying, look at the crowd. And, and David and all of your jazz fans out there listening, I'm sorry, but you look at all of the faces in the background of that shot from behind MJ as that ball has released from his hands. Every person in that stadium knew that ball was going in and they didn't need a timeout to do it. It's the greatest shot in the history of the game. Like Ray Allen's shot is close, but there has to be another game that comes. It is the single greatest shot in the history of the NBA. And I don't know, like in baseball, is there a, is Joe Carter's home run? Like, I don't know, like, is it Francisco Cabrera? Like, I don't know where you go in baseball to find that same moment, but that's the single greatest shot in the history of the NBA. I agree. I was saying while it was happening to my roommates, I said that you're about to see the, no, they're not basketball fans. I said, if you want to see the best shot in NBA history, come, come watch right now in great detail. It's not very often that the greatest shot in the history of the sport or greatest moment in the history of the sport is actually also the greatest player in the history of the sport. And and not often that it happens in a game six and not a deciding, you know, a game seven. That's typically where you find these sort of great moments is when everything is on the line. Um, And while you could certainly make an argument that a lot was on the line with game six. Yeah, but six we all with- know MJ never needed a game seven in the finals. So, you know, if you, if you don't need a game seven, you can't have a game seven shot. Right, <laughs> exactly. But um, And they had no chance to win game seven because Scottie Pippen was hurt and the Jazz were at home and the home team wins game seven and the Jazz had the best. Okay, oh, okay, it's been 20 years. Oh boy, oh boy, calm down. Three, 22 years. I should be okay. Evidently, I'm not. Who wins that Pacers-Jazz um, finals, David? Oh, we kick your ass. What are you talking about? <laughs> Actually, 
For as much as the Bulls, Bill Cartwright talked about the Jazz matching up, the Bulls matching up badly to the Jazz, the the, uh, Pacers actually matched up very well to the Jazz back then because uh, Reggie Miller gave Jeff Hornacek fits. The two Davis brothers battled Malone very, very well. And actually, the Pacers, in many ways, matched up, were a tougher matchup in some ways at, by the end of that for them, the Jazz were against the Bulls. The only problem, the Bulls had that guy, Jordan. Yeah, that's not a good documentary. By the way, props to John Stockton for joining B.J. Armstrong as uh, finders of the Fountain of Youth. I mean, these guys don't age. What's up? Stockton has looked, <laughs> Stockton has looked 37 his entire life. So, so, David, what did you think of the Stockton pull-up on the last possession of that game six? Uh, high pick and roll where he gets the shot. He's got to be the one who takes the shot. If you followed that team that whole year, he's the one, unless it's going to be Hornacek somehow coming off something. So it's probably as good a look as you can get for a 6-1 guard. And, you know, Stockton's shot is what sends them to the finals in the Western Conference Finals in 97. Stockton's shot is what gives them the lead moments earlier like he's you know, your mailman is giving you the you know all night every night effort and mailman certainly has been there for you but I, I I'm the same if if I were a Jazz fan I would want Stockton taking that shot because and and Dave you mentioned Game One of the '97 Finals a few minutes ago I was a ten year old kid in the nosebleeds of the United Center for that game and every day I find joy in Scottie Pippen's line that he whispers to to Carl when he's at the free throw line which they glossed over in the doc. They didn't even mention the whole mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays thing when they show like before they show MJ hitting that uh, game winner in game one. But I would I would want John John hitting hitting that shot taking that shot because as great as Carl was, he choked. He was a choker. That's rough. So- sorry, not sorry. Hey, <laughs> can, can, I'm I'm gonna push back on the greatest shot. And just just to throw, because I'm a Celtics guy and I'm representing Lockdown Celtics, I just want to say that Sam Jones hit a bunch of really important shots in the 1960s. And because TV wasn't there and it wasn't as prevalent, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to leave it there. I'll just leave it there. That Sam Jones was known for hitting clutch shots, game-winning shots, before anybody else. Before Jerry West was Mr. Clutch, before all of that stuff. I'm just going to say, I'm just gonna let, let people go Google Sam Jones game winner and go do your own research. Okay. I, I don't think they're going to do you that. Giving <laughs> love to your old Celtics. I appreciate you going to black and white footage. I pre- hope to God we don't get to the point where we're watching that in July. Cause we don't have real NBA. And the fact <laughs> that you can't give me a singular shot pr- is my I, point on the whole thing. I took, I took an opening. I just wanted to drop it in there. That's all. That's, that that's nice of you. Thanks. You could have at least respected Ray Allen, but he did it in Miami. So you Ray should Ray John Rondo and pretend it didn't exist. Ray also, who? Ray Allen traveled before that shot. I'm just gonna throw that out there, but whatever. Well, Jordan pushed <laughs> off. So what the hell's the difference? <laughs> also, I really look forward to watching the ten part documentary on Sam Jones. I, I really really can't wait for that. As you I should said, listen to Locked On Celtics. I've done it. <laughs> We'll be doing 10-part documentaries on the Eddie Curry-Tyson Chandler oh. Twin Towers if we're not lucky. Oh, David, that hurts. Ooh. That hurts too hard, man. 
Burn. I, I hate that the final that next the final the thing on the screen at the end of this documentary is just a little text that's like, you know, uh, MJ retires, Phil walks away, Scotty is traded, Dennis is released, Steve Kerr is traded, yeah. the Bulls begin their rebuild. My executive producer yeah. of my Bulls postgame show, my two co-stars, have a text thread. Our executive producer texts dot, 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 and the Bulls are still rebuilding <laughs> all these that's years right. later. That's exactly my thought, too. I love it. They're still rebuilding. That's awesome. I'll bet you Jerry Krause wouldn't have hired Jim Boylan. A lot of people would not have hired Jim Boylan. Yeah, speaking of Jerry Krause, I feel like this this final episode redeemed him a little bit, right? I mean, it was it was a very odd thing where uh, you had Reinsdorf. It was sort of like Scooby-Doo where they ripped off the mask and it was like, oh, it was actually Reinsdorf the whole time. <laughs> What? They because it's what we've been saying this whole time. Be like, guys, you're you're all crapping all over him, but he built winners around Jordan. He, no one was building around wings. No one was building around guards back then. And the Bulls were like, well, this guy's going to be awesome. So we're not going to build around a center. We're going to build around Jordan. And he made all of these moves, including at the end getting Dennis Rodman and getting Steve Kerr, getting all of these little role players, these guys that that fit exactly what they needed. So they spent this entire documentary crapping all over Kraus, and at the end, they finally had to acknowledge, be like, well, yeah, he was also really good. Like, he also was a huge part of this. Like, it's, it, it's a shame that Kraus isn't around to kind of stick up for himself. Now, there is that element of Kraus, probably if he was around, would have made maybe a little too much noise to stick up for himself because that's, that's, that is his personality. That was his personality, but he, he definitely deserved a little bit better treatment than, than what he got over these 10 episodes. Bulls fans don't like to hear it, but yeah. I think Krause doesn't get enough credit. Um, he didn't do himself any favors continuously talking about, you know, organizations, organizations, organizations when it, when it comes to winning. When he's up there on the championship podium, podium with Michael Jordan, the greatest player ever, and Scottie Pippen, the greatest sidekick ever. Um, but even Scotty, you know, w- the early parts of this documentary, we get the Scotty versus Kraus rift and the Scotty contract and feeling underappreciated and Scotty talking trash to Kraus and MJ talking trash to Kraus. Scotty, when he's recapping this whole experience, says, you know, we got the greatest player of all time. We got the greatest coach of all time. And he says about Jerry Kraus, we have probably the greatest GM of all time because outside of the MJ Scotty duo and Phil Jackson running the team, Kraus built every other piece around both of those three-peat teams. There is not a single person outside of MJ, Scotty, and Phil that was a part of both three-peat teams, and Kraus made that happen. He made it happen from 91 to 93. He made it happen from 96 to 98. Bulls fans hate giving him credit for that because they also want to blame him for the breakup of the dynasty, but he also, you know, people call him the sleuth. He was not a likable guy. At the championship rally, you you saw the footage of their last championship rally in Grant Park towards the end of the dock, and Phil's talking about Kraus and giving Kraus credit. There are a million people in Grant Park, downtown Chicago, booing Jerry Kraus as they're celebrating their sixth title. That's all you need to know. 
Yeah, and you had Jordan at the end of the documentary basic, basically saying that Reinsdorf at the beginning of 1990 or at the beginning of that 97-98 season could have said, hey, pump the brakes. We don't know what we're going to do at the end of the season. But he didn't do that. And that set in motion uh, everything that we saw from, from Kraus in the last dance. Let's wrap on what I did think was one of the cooler scenes shared kind of the new information, the new stuff. I mean, I think for there's two, you know, there's two very different viewing audiences. Those who are, who are bringing back memories that something they've experienced before and those that are getting exposed to it for the first time. So this, this last dance had a very kind of different impact on people. The story of Phil Jackson having the can't, the, the seance where they all bring their writing and then burn it. I mean, talk about a guy who like just closed the thing, fit, fitting his brand of whatever he built. I remember always thinking it was a little bit of a hoax. Maybe it's not. Like that story was, to my book, kind of awesome to see these players sitting around writing this, sharing their thoughts, burning them together. And even Steve Kerr saying like, it's one of the most emotional things I've ever been through. It's one thing to get a team to buy into your offense or your defense but it's another thing entirely to get them to buy into an entire philosophy, an entire way of thinking, and a way of of living. And so that, uh, in and of itself, I think is a testament to what Phil Jackson was able to do with the Chicago Bulls. And as a Celtics guy who is very defensive of Red Arback's legacy, and you know, a, a person who has said over time that. You know, uh, uh, Phil has gone into some some pretty good ready-made situations. The the level of his impact individually with players, uh, it's very easy to say. Well, you know, Phil walks into a team with Kobe and Shaq. Phil walks into a team with Jordan and Pippen, and yeah, of course they're going to win championships. Okay, maybe maybe they'll win a couple, but. I really did gain a greater appreciation of, and David, you said this earlier, how hard it is to win a championship. How many little things come up over the course of a season that we'll never know. We didn't know about Dennis Rodman running off to Vegas or running off to be a WCW wrestler or or any of these things. All of these little fires that you have to put out, the things that you have to manage, we don't understand the depth of how difficult that is. And I I did gain a greater appreciation of what Phil Jackson did throughout the course of that entire run that allowed the Bulls to be the Bulls that they were, that and it is a little Jerry, it is a little Jerry Krausish to 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 say it, but it is a full organization thing. Jordan definitely, obviously, like the overwhelming majority of why they won. But Kraus put players around him, and Jackson makes the whole thing just kind of work. He stirs the pot. The right way allows guys to be themselves just enough, puts guys in the right situations, and and manages things extraordinarily well. Yeah, allows guys to be themselves. I think is the key phrase you just hit there, John. Uh, and we we got some of that with Phil and Dennis's relationship earlier on in previous episodes. 
And, uh, you know, you mentioned not only the, the Vegas story, but Dennis's sojourn to uh, to WWF for a second, uh, which which was un- unlike Vegas, not an excused absence. You know, I mean, you know, th- that chair wasn't going to throw itself at Diamond Dallas Page. Dennis had to go there and do that. Um, but then he was right there hitting clutch free throws for a win against Utah the next night in the NBA Finals. Um, I, I think that's like that is the big takeaway for me as a diehard lifelong Bulls fan through and through. Obviously, I have known and appreciated MJ's greatness from day one, but Phil Jackson to me is the big winner of this doc. We all knew MJ was throwing this doc out there to you know re- reestablish himself as the goat because people are starting to talk about maybe he's not. He very much is. That's obvious. But I have such a great appreciation for Phil Jackson and everything he did to make this dynasty happen. It says a lot about his coaching and people management abilities that he won another three-peat with another organization. You know, like, I know that that's not the focus of what this documentary is about and the challenges of the specific team that the the Bulls he was coaching, but to be able to, to reset, hop into the Lakers ecosystem and do it again is just, that says everything you need to know about Phil Jackson, the coach. Hey, can we give a shout-out to Gus, the security guard, who was prominently featured? I mean, that was awesome. It was they, they did some nice, awesome sidebars in this, too. The Steve Kerr segment with him and his father was amazing. And the fact that they, they took that much time to separate the Steve Kerr thing and the Gus story was... I, I really, really enjoyed that. Did you guys catch that the... They finished the editing of version nine today. I didn't know. So partially because of the Stockton interview um, and partially because of COVID-19, they put the last pieces together remotely and they did it basically. I heard they did it basically this today is when episode nine was finished. It's an LA times article. I think that's insane. Because um, they got the Stockton interview later than they had uh, some other things, so kind of a um, uh, there. I'll, I'll try. To, I'll retweet out at Locked On Sports. Um, uh, I'll tweet out the the link to the article. Um, well, yeah, you bring you bring up that point, and and I think we may see a different version of this documentary in the future when it makes its way to Netflix because they'll have because obviously they moved this up because of. Uh, because of COVID nineteen and and getting it in this window, so I just wonder if there's going to be a slightly different, maybe modified, um, added footage uh, that they didn't have time to really work in. Um, so that could be exciting. Another version. The, the director Jason Hire, who probably heard a lot in the article, was quoted as saying, "It's disappointing people watch the unfinished product. They're taking the cake out of the oven when it's raw. I can't stop people from doing that, but I'm looking forward to people watching the final finished version on Sunday and experiencing with the rest of the world. So, like, they really, and, and I also know for a fact that a lot of media members, including Ben Golliver, had seen the first eight episodes. That's what they shared with the media. They had not shared nine and ten to people otherwise. So they, they finished this at the very uh, last day. All right, final. Go ahead, Doug. 
Oh, I was just going to say, here's how you know that that's the case, because how little did they go to their little animation where they move back and forth in time? They had hit that so hard through the first eight episodes. We barely saw that happen in the final two. I think a lot of that had to do with how much uh, they they had to get it done. All right. Any final thoughts? I think there are, there are, as I said earlier, I want to wrap it on this. There's two different types of people who watch this. There's those who had memories sparked and those who learned anew. Starting with Tony East, Locked on Pacers, either one of those two, what is the thing you leave Last Dance with? Leave Last Dance with. I leave Last Dance with two things. One, I hope the eventual Netflix edited version has more backstory on our screaming Pacers lady fan. I would love to know more about her. <laughs> and and two, I just I walk away learning more about how challenging a three-peat really is in the NBA, how much has to break your way, roster construction-wise, star-wise, mentally, uh, opponent-wise, just everything has to go perfectly. There's only been three, uh, all coached by the same guy since the merger. I mean, they're just so hard, and it gives me a newfound appreciation for both dynasties and sports in general and in the NBA, given how hard it is for players to stick, especially now that player empowerment makes movement so fast. Doug Branson, Locked On Hornets. What did you? What were you left with? I think the new thing that I was left with uh, is how many small things have to go right to build a dynasty. Um, from Steve Kerr to uh, Scotty Pippen to Coach, all of these little things that went right for the Bulls that they hit on, um, to pair that with the greatest player of all time uh, is, is exactly why they were as dominant uh, as they were for many years. I'll go next. I was a Jordan disciple. I, I think I told the story on a previous Last Dance postgame show that I bought a house. I think, whether I want to admit it or not, maybe entirely so that I could put a huge satellite dish in the back of my yard, which wasn't very big. If you know it was my first house, you can only guess how big my house and yard was, to put a satellite dish that was bigger than my yard in so I could go to G.722 and watch the Bulls every night I possibly could. So it was a great reminder for me on that end, just as someone had been there, covered it at, by the end, to watch just how truly, truly great he was. John Corrales, either of those two categories, where were you left? Um, well, I'm left with Jordan just demonstrating what greatness is all about. That, that to me, is the biggest thing here, that greatness is something... Uh, that's so innate that we are left wondering where the hell does this come from? And it was asked, uh, I don't know, it was Tony or Matt that's, that said, where does Michael get this drive? Where does, where does this come from? Um, that, that to me is the biggest thing that Jordan was so good. That was, he was so just amazing at finding ways to win that he, he demonstrates what being that great means. We'll let Matt Pack, Locked on Bulls, have our final word of the last dance. Well, uh, David, you asked, you know, were you, did, did you learn something or were you reminded of something? I would say, 
as a as a Bulls fan lifelong, um, someone who grew up with his dynasty and uh, someone who has covered the team, um, I I was reminded of a lot of things, and uh, obviously, as a, as a like thinking back as a kid, some of those games were the most emotionally fraught parts of my childhood. I lived and died by this Bulls team, um, and and the. A crazy amount of power that that team had on me and my emotions uh, is what led me to to getting into this industry today. A big reason why I wanted to get into sports media is because of this Bulls dynasty and because of the greatness of Michael Jordan. Um, it you know it, it was all day every day growing up was being a kid in Chicago worshiping MJ and that team. Um, and uh, I think the, the the big thing I'm taking away from this, as you know, my my co-host Jordan and I on Locked On Bulls talk about not only this great dynasty and the documentary, but what's happening in the current uh, news of of Chicago Bulls and this franchise with the f- the the long overdue overturning of the front office, is that I watched John Paxson, the bald, you know. Uh, you know, looks like a movie villain, looks like a, a a villain to a superhero, John Paxson, reminiscing about the old days where John Paxson has a head of hair and a mustache making big shots for the Bulls in the 90s. I, myself and a lot of Bulls fans, I think, watch this documentary not with bitterness, but with hope. Um, because if this documentary was put in our faces while we were still languishing in this third year of a failed rebuild, and I had to watch that final text across the screen at episode 10 saying the Bulls began a rebuild, and here we are 22 years later, we still haven't won another title yet, it would be so disheartening. Um, And I think Bulls fans were sick of the organization resting on its laurels of this dynasty and of Michael Jordan's greatness. So... What I took away from this documentary was those were great times. Those times defined the joy of my childhood. But I am so thankful that we watched this documentary while the Bulls have recently turned a fresh page. Because um, I think that fresh page was long overdue. And I think Bulls fans, as much as they love reliving the glory years, they know that those glory years and the reason that they're so passionate about this team is because they know what it likes. They know what it's like to win championships, and and we want to win more. And so that that is the big takeaway from this doc for me is that like thank God this doc was dropped early, but not too early that Bulls fans don't have uh, something fresh to look forward to because there's a new direction with the current 2020 Chicago Bulls. And I'm going to wrap this on a bit of a somber note. I hope it's all right with everyone. The first great bull of all time was Jerry Sloan, whose number is retired in the rafters of Chicago. He is also the head coach of the Jazz in these final set, and he is struggling badly with Parkinson's and with dementia right now. So we want to send our best wishes, our thoughts and prayers to Coach Sloan, who kind of is at the epitome of all of this kind of toughness of that era and everything. On behalf of Doug Branson, who's been producing these broadcasts, we thank you very much to Tony who stopped by to go with the pain, join me to be in the pained group of the those victimized by Jordan, to John Corrales, who's been a stalwart throughout from Lockdown Celtics, and to Matt Pack, who does a great job on Lockdown Bulls. I hope you enjoyed this unique Locked On Podcast Network production of the Last Dance postgame shows every Monday. Josh Lloyd back with you next Monday. Locked On NBA stays with you every day. Have a great night. Thanks very much. A great day. Thank you very much for tuning in. This has been the Locked On Podcast Network.